Good morning. So glad to be with, here, with you here this morning. As Sarah said, my name is Andy, Andy Moore. I am a campus pastor at Belfield Presbyterian Church with the CCO. I've been doing that for 15 years. Nine of those years were spent with your pastor, Chris Ansel. Uh, for the past 15 years, we have been very dear friends, um, uh, including my wife, Emily, is very good friends with Sarah. Um, and we're just so thrilled uh, to be here this morning and to worship with you all. And uh, before I get started, let me pray. Heavenly Father, your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. All of this, gracious Father, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So we live in a time where the relationships that we see around us, including our very own relationships, are conditional or transactional. In fact, it's hard to find a relationship that is at least not based on minor conditions. Uh, having expectations, for example, um, can be a condition. I expect you to do X, Y, and Z, and in return I'll do A, B, and C. Um, this isn't necessarily how it's supposed to be, but it's true. As the saying goes, I'll scratch your back if you, you scratch mine. Yes. Interaction. Good. Uh, that's a condition. It's, it's a transaction that takes place. And we see this creep into the family sometimes, right? So when I was asked growing up uh, by my father to do a chore, I would often respond with, well, how much are you going to pay me? Or uh, what, what are you going to give me? Right? And then my father would respond by saying, you get the satisfaction of a hard day's work. The classic dad response. Right? And it's only through knowing and emulating Christ that when someone does not meet those expectations or exposes their flaws to us, that we don't turn tail, right? That we love them wholeheartedly. And we realize that we are supposed to love unconditionally. And so we must continually take up our crosses and die to ourselves daily, putting the needs of others before the needs of ourself. Even if this means letting go of those expectations. Unfortunately, the question of, what are you going to give me, like I asked my father, has crept into our relationship with our Heavenly Father, right? Uh, it's what many call the prosperity gospel. It says, yeah, I'll follow you, God, but in return, I must have blessings, wealth, power, health, whatever it might be. Um, unfortunately, I believe this is a false gospel, one based on our conditional ideals, um, following God does involve a blessing. It does involve a blessing, but it's a different type of blessing. Um, following God does involve a transaction 
but it is a different type of transaction, one that he sets, not us. So what are these blessings? What are these transactions? Well, uh, we are about to explore that in the beginning of Jesus's famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, what is called the Beatitudes. Jesus turns worlds and worldviews upside down. That's what he does. And we're about to discover what that exactly means. So if you could turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 12. That's Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 12. We will get our collective worlds rocked. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so, the persecuted, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus' famous sermon begins with a declaration on values of the kingdom of heaven, which are carefully put together for easy memorization, uh, for maximum impact. And it seems to be largely, in our view, contradictory in nature, um, in uh, contradictory in character. It seems almost backwards. It praises those who the world would define and dismiss as losers, as wimps. And the beatitude calls God's people to stand out as different than those around them and promises them that those who do so will ultimately not be viewed as losers. And in turn, it is God who will comfort, God who will give the inheritance, God who will satisfy, God who will show mercy, and God who will call us his children. So let's start. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what Matthew is saying here, he means the literal poor, um, those who do not have material wealth. And, but he focuses more on their mental state or frame of mind than their material possessions. So in Israel, especially in the post-exilic period, poverty and piety were often went together. They were linked together. And with the poor having no other alternative than their hope in God. They were driven to complete reliance upon God. And to be poor in spirit is to acknowledge spiritual bankruptcy. It confesses one's unworthiness before God and utter dependence upon Him. And therefore, the kingdom of heaven is not given on the basis of race, of earned merits, of zeal, of power, or wealth. It is given to the poor, to the despised tax collectors, to the prostitutes, the marginalized, those who know they can offer absolutely nothing in return. They cry for mercy, and they are heard. 
And this theme is present, uh, this theme presents that there is nothing one can do or achieve to inherit the kingdom of God. All must begin by confessing that they themselves can achieve absolutely nothing. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, This message is of a restoration for um, an oppressed Israel, an exiled Israel. Uh, The godly remnant of Jesus' day weeps. They mourn because of the humiliation that they received. However, they understand that it comes from personal as well as corporate sins. The psalmist testified, said this, Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. So when Jesus preached, the kingdom of heaven is near, he expected not celebration, but repentance. It is not enough to acknowledge spiritual, uh, spiritual bankruptcy with a cold heart. Weeping for sins can be deeply heartbreaking and can even cover global as well as a personal view of sin and our participation in it. So those blessings depend on a Messiah who has come to save his people from their, spent, their sins. And the experience joy without tears is that's what we long for, Right? As Charles Wesley once penned in his famous hymn, he speaks, and listening to his voice, new life and dead received, the mournful, broken hearts rejoice, the humble poor believe. Mourning includes grief caused by both personal sin and loss from social evil and oppression. And God will comfort now, in part, but fully in the future, For those who, as God's people, find their current situation intolerable or incomprehensible, you just don't get it, there are better times ahead. There is hope. Next, verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, the word meek is usually fairly hard to define. A, A meek person is not a weak person. It is not the wallflower we often think of when we use this word, but it generally suggests gentleness, self-control. It's not to be confused with weakness. The meek are not uh, simply submissive because they lack resources to be anything else. Meekness is actually quite compatible with great strength and ability. Whenever uh, whatever strength the meek person has is accompanied by humility and a genuine dependence on God. True meekness are those who could assert themselves, but they choose not to. Now, the Greeks, uh, back in Jesus' day, admired humility, especially in authority figures. But such humility always reeked of condescension. By being humble, they thought they were greater, which kind of takes out the humility part of that. So in general, the Greeks considered meekness a flaw because they failed to distinguish it. Uh, They compared it to people-pleasing. To be meek towards others implies freedom from hatred, freedom from a vengeful spirit. And Jesus best exemplifies this, right? Meek, like the poor in spirit, speaks of those who are, in fact, um, the disadvantaged, the powerless, but also those whose attitudes are not arrogant, or oppressive. Now, the term is also to be understood in relations with people. The meek are those who do not throw their weight about, that do not throw their power about. Uh, We may acknowledge our own spiritual bankruptcy, and we may mourn, 
but to respond with meekness when others tell us that our bankruptcy, uh, about our bankruptcy, that's much, much harder to do when someone points out your sins. Meekness, therefore, requires a true view about ourselves that will express itself in our attitudes towards others. And it's the meek, not the strong, not the aggressive, not the harsh, not the tyrannical, who will inherit the earth, the future reign of the messianic kingdom. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So hunger and thirst uh, clearly express desire. As the psalm says, My soul thirsts for God, the living God. Uh, the deepest spiritual famine is a hunger for the word of God. For the poor, righteousness would include having their basic needs met, uh, basic needs for food met. But it goes on to include a desire to see God's standards established and obeyed in every area of life. Again, God promises that his purposes will be accomplished and that his justice will eventually reign. And these people hunger and thirst, not only that they may be righteous, that they may, be that they may wholly do God's will from the heart, but that justice may be done everywhere. All unrighteousness grieves, grieves them and makes them homesick for a new heaven, a new earth, the home of righteousness, of justice. And satisfied with neither personal righteousness nor social justice alone, they cry for both. In short, they long for the coming of the messianic kingdom. What they taste now whets their appetite for more. The poor, the grieving, the downtrodden, those who have experienced injustice are by definition those who long for God to act, to see God's will done. And ultimately, they will be satisfied in Jesus Christ. Verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, mercy is closely linked with forgiveness, but it's broader here than just forgiveness for a specific offense. It is a generous attitude which is willing to see things from the other's point of view and is not quick to take offense or to gloat over our other's shortcomings. So mercy sets aside the part of us that says it is honorable to demand revenge, to seek retaliation. Mercy embraces both forgiveness for the guilty and compassion for those who are suffering, who have need. Mercy is to be a function of Jesus' followers, not of a, a particular situation that just demands it. And the reward is uh, not mercy shown by others, but by God. So this beatitude, like the others, is linked to the context of the other beatitudes. It is the meek who are also to be merciful. And for, uh, for to be meek is to acknowledge to others that we are sinners. And to be merciful is to have compassion on others, for they are sinners. And what the poor and oppressed have not received in mercy, uh, they have not received mercy, but nevertheless they should show to others. Verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. With us, when we use the word heart, uh, we often just refer to emotions. Like, I love that. Uh, I love my wife with my whole heart. That's usually what we mean, right? 
but we can't take our understanding of what heart means and then glue it onto Scripture. Uh, and Scripture, heart, whenever heart is used, it means for the whole of our inner state, thought, will. Um, pure in heart means inner moral, moral purity, uprightness, as opposed to merely just piety. Rather, as with righteousness, Jesus requires of his followers a lifestyle that is characterized by emulating and following God. So inward deception, deceit, moral filth cannot coexist in sincere devotion to Christ. Holiness is a prerequisite for entering uh, into God's presence, and so the pure in heart passed this test. So they will see God and experience intimate fellowship with him. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Uh, Jesus' concern in this beatitude is not with the peaceful, uh, but with those who create peace, the peacemakers. So in light of the gospel, Jesus himself is the ultimate. He is the supreme peacemaker, making peace between God and humanity, and also with humanity and humanity. Our peacemaking will include the proclamation of that gospel. So it must also extend to seeking reconciliation as well. Instead of delighting in division, bitterness, strife, whatever it might be, followers of Jesus delight in making peace wherever and whenever possible. Those who partake in, the wor uh, in this work are acknowledged, it says, as God's children. It says the sons of God. In the Old Testament, Israel had the title sons of God, but now it belongs to the heirs of the kingdom who meek and poor in spirit, loving righteousness yet merciful, are especially equipped for peacemaking. And so now they reflect their heavenly father's very character. There is something godlike about bringing people to peace and uh, peace to people. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So it's no accident that Jesus should pass from peacemaking to persecution, for the world enjoys its hates and it enjoys its prejudices so much that the peacemaker is not always welcome. Opposition is a normal mark of being a follower of Jesus, and it's as normal as hungering for righteousness or as normal as being merciful. Jesus is speaking of those uh, committed to God's cause, to righteousness, and it is the kind of conduct, conduct appropriate, appropriate for those who have been in a right standing before God. Salvation is all of grace, we know that, but there is a kind of conduct that is expected to those who have received God's good gift. It is the kind of conduct on which Jesus pronounces blessings. Those who undergo persecution uh, for God's cause, for not at, for any fault of their own, will receive a blessing like the poor in spirit, right? It is given uh, in exactly the same words. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. Theirs is the same underlying attitude and the same ultimate reward. And we'll finish with verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you, and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, 
for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So these two verses switch from the third person to the second person, and uh, um, they apply the force of the last beatitude, which we had about persecution, not to the church, but to Jesus's followers, to his disciples. Verse 11 extends the persecution to include insult, persecution, slander. The reason for the persecution in verse 10 is because of righteousness, and now Jesus says it is because of him. These verses neither encourage seeking per, uh, persecution or they, uh, they also do not permit retreating from it. They don't permit sulking or retaliation. These verses uh, form the reasonable response of faith, one which the early Christians who were persecuted would, would have understood here. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who was a Lutheran pastor, theologian during World War II in Nazi Germany, once said, Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ, and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and token of his grace. So the call to be blessed during persecution, be blessed. Bless, another word for being blessed is being happy during persecution. That, that, uh, that sounds a little contradictory, right? That sounds like it doesn't make sense, particularly with these cheerful terms that Matthew uses here, be blessed. But as with the other Beatitudes concerning those who mourn, uh, the blessing is not in the suffering, but in its promised outcome. We are then able to invert these natural worldly values only when we recognize that God will in turn reverse our marginalized status and grant eternal compensation with him. God, I want to follow you, right? How can I be blessed? Well, become poor in spirit, become spiritually bankrupt. Mourn, realize your sins and repent of them. Become meek, reserve your strength and your humility when it's so easy to retaliate. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, seek justice. Become merciful. Have compassion on others, even when they won't show you compassion. Become pure in heart. Set yourselves apart as holy. Become a peacemaker. Seek shalom. If persecuted for righteousness or for my sake, you will be blessed. So how do I receive this blessing? By becoming nothing. And that seems so backwards. So the question arises, what does God want of you? What does God want of you? The answer is everything. Everything. When Jesus says to love God with all of your heart and all of your mind, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, he is saying to love God with everything you are, with your entire being. I don't think that heart, soul, mind, and strength was meant to give us like a psychological breakdown of the various components of a human personality or psyche, but rather these four parts were intended to give us a comprehensive picture of what it is to have our total 
devotion to God. While salvation is a free gift, free as in we don't have to do anything to earn it, uh, but God gives it to us, this is explicit in Romans 5, it cost, it did cost something. It cost Christ his life, and it will cost you yours. So in other words, God doesn't just want a part of you. God wants all of you. He doesn't just want a Sunday Christian. He wants a Sunday to Monday Christian, a Sunday to Saturday Christian. God's wholehearted love must not be answered in a half-hearted manner. He, God gives us everything, and in turn, we must give him everything, however little it looks to the world. He wants your total devotion. He wants your love. He wants you. Salvation is a free gift, but it is not cheap. And once you follow Jesus, um, is there a great reward? Is there a blessing? Well, yes, absolutely. Following Jesus is the reward. We now have a restored relationship with our Creator, with the God of the universe, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We give him everything, and in turn, he blesses us with everything. Now, it may not be riches, it may not be power, it may not be comfort, but he blesses us with himself because he is everything. We get a relationship with him, we get everything. Jesus turns worlds upside down. He did it to me my sophomore year at college at West Virginia University. And he wants to do that to you if he hasn't already. And perhaps that's where you are. Um, perhaps you are stuck in a stagnant pool of contentment. You think you're just fine. And Jesus is desperately trying to get you out. Because Jesus was the embodiment of the Beatitudes. The embodiment of what it meant to fully love God and to fully love people. And he showed mercy and he showed compassion to everyone he met, even to the point of death on a Roman torture device. And once we learn this, we must embrace it. We must be vulnerable and through that be humbled. And we must confess, I am nothing but God. You are everything. You are everything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, keep us from being preoccupied with money, with worldly goods, uh, and with trying to increase them at the expense of justice. Help us not to be ruthless with one another and to eliminate the discord and violence that exists in the world around us. Let us not be impatient under our own burdens and unconcerned with the burdens of others. Make us thirst for you, the fountain of all holiness, and actively spread your influence in our private lives and in society. Grant that we may be quick to forgive and slow to condemn. Free us from our senses and our evil desires and fix our eyes on you. Aid us to make peace in our families, in our country, and in our world. 
make us willing to suffer for the sake of right rather, uh, rather than to practice injustice. And do not let us discriminate against our neighbors and oppress and persecute them. We ask all this in your holy and precious name. Amen.